I'll invite you to open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 3 this morning. Even though the passage we'll be looking at is one that many of us, if not most of us, could recite from memory without even opening our Bibles. You know, there's quite a few verses from Scripture that it seems like just about every Christian, no matter what part of the world you're from, seems to know from memory. Verses like, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, or the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or in the beginning God created, or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Many verses that even just after a few words, your mind already starts completing the rest of the sentence. But there's no verse with quite the fame and quite the widespread recognition as John 3.16. There's even many non-Christians that could probably recite that verse. It's the hallmark verse of Christianity, and it's for good reason. There's probably no verse in the Bible that has such an incredible truth in such a compact statement. The gospel that we believe in is an incredible gospel. It's a massive gospel. But here, John manages to capture the heart and the essence of the gospel in just 24 words, or 25, depending on your translation. And here's what he says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That is the gospel. Theologians of the past like Martin Luther and Matthew Henry refer to this verse as the gospel in miniature. This is the gospel in a nutshell. We all know it, but is our hearts captured by the truth of it? The old saying that familiarity breeds contempt is what we run the risk of. There's the risk of being so familiar with this that after a while we start to miss the majesty of the truth. And so this morning, my hope and prayer is that, is that as we look at these verses, verses that are etched into our memories and our hearts, that it would once again grip our hearts and our souls with the truth found there, that we would be brought to our knees in awe and wonder by the fact that God has sent his son to make a way for us to be saved. Yet at the same time, as, we are, as we're filled with awe by this truth, it should also sober us. For while this passage details the saving work of God on our behalf, it also makes clear that apart from belief in Jesus, we're both dead and dying. So I enter this pulpit this morning knowing that there's likely people in a room of this size who at this moment, your eternity rests as if on the edge of a knife. We aren't here playing games. We're not here playing church. The eternal souls of men and women are at stake but I have all the confidence in the world that the word of God is alive and active and has the power to grip our hearts and that the Holy Spirit is still drawing men and women to himself just as he has for 2,000 years. So if you're here this morning and you're searching for purpose and satisfaction and you're trying to do life your way and you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, I'd invite you to witness this morning the incredible act God has taken to make your salvation possible. So would you please just pray with me real quick as we get started into this. Father, I pray this morning, God, that your spirit would take over, God. I know I bring nothing to the table. I am so inadequate for the task, but God, your word is power and your word is life. And I pray that this morning hearts would be changed and transformed by the power of your word and you would draw men and women to you. It's in your name we pray, amen. So we'll unpack verse 16. And then move on to the rest of the passage. But before that, we need to see how this connects to the previous verses. 
verses like John 3.16 that we know so well, we often sometimes don't know how they connect to the broader passage around them. But remember, Jesus was in a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. He was a member of the Pharisees. And Jesus introduced Nicodemus to this idea, this concept of being born again, this concept of a new birth. And Jesus said that this new birth was required to enter heaven. And even after explaining it, Nicodemus still says, how can this be? He's stumped. He's bewildered. He doesn't understand how can this new birth of the Spirit be what lets someone enter heaven? And what we find here in John 3, 16 is the answer to that question. This is the how can it be? The new birth comes through Jesus because of what verse 16 tells us. And most scholars agree that starting in verse 16, these are actually the words of the author, John, not Jesus. So John, he gives us the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And then here, starting in verse 16, inserts his own explanation of how this new birth is possible through Jesus. God sent him so that by believing in him, we would have eternal life. And so to really understand the weight of this verse, it's helpful to start from the end and work our way back to the beginning. And we're going to break it down into three parts. We have the problem, the solution, and the reason. The problem, the solution, and the reason. First, the problem. It says, whoever believes in him should not perish. And so the problem that's implied there is that we are perishing. That apart from belief, we perish, and in a sense, we are already perishing. And that's the problem, death. Death is never our friend. Death is always the enemy. It came directly as a consequence of the fall when Adam and Eve first sinned. But not only did, it bring, did the fall bring a physical death, but it brought an eternal and spiritual death, an eternal separation from God. And it affected the human race like a plague. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5, 2, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The first sin infected the human race, and every person since has been born in sin, except Jesus Christ. That's why the virgin birth matters, by the way. But we're all born in sin, and as Paul puts it in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's what sin is. It's missing the mark. It's coming up short of the standard that God has of holiness. And Paul then finishes it off in Romans 6.23 by letting us know the consequence of our sin, He says, for the wages of sin is death. Sin reaps death. And that's my story, and that's your story. We're all born in sin. We're basically DOA. We're dead on arrival in this world. And there's no hope because there's nothing that we could do to make it right. There's no remedy that we could come up with for our situation. We're hopeless and helpless. But then we find a solution to the problem. It says, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So all of a sudden, a light pierces the darkness of our despair, and there's a solution to our problem of sin, and that comes in the form of the man, Jesus Christ. But he isn't just a man. He is the only son of God. But we really can't talk about the solution without, without already mentioning the reason, the reason behind it all. The motivation for God sending his son to die on the cross is his love. The problem is that we're dead in our sin. The solution is the sacrifice of Jesus. And the reason behind it all is God's love. For God so loved 
the world. And we could spend hours just thinking about that one short phrase by itself. And no matter, no matter else what you think you know about God or how you feel about God personally, know the truth that's in that phrase that God loves the world. We're used to thinking of God loving his people, and certainly in the Jewish mind um, of that day, they would have recognized, thought of God loving the Jews, his chosen people. But John here says that God loved the world. The word world there, when it's used by John, is always referring to the people of the world, everyone, but usually in opposition to God. Everyone, the people of the world who are in opposition to God. So God has shown his love towards every person, even those who oppose him, no matter their race or ethnicity or where they're from. And the proper way to understand this verse isn't that God loved the world so much that he did this, but really the proper understanding of it is that God sending Jesus was an act of love by God towards the world. This is God loving the world in sending Jesus. Because it's our human tendency to focus on ourselves. And there's a, a very new, a slight nuance between those two ways of interpreting it, but it makes a world of difference. Our tendency is to want to focus on ourselves. So it's easy to interpret John 3.16 as meaning God loved me so much that he sent Jesus to die for me. But the wickedness of that is that the focus is on me and not on God. God loved me so much. And it takes the glory and the focus from God and instead puts it on us. So instead of God being great, we're making ourselves great. Instead of God's love being special and unique, we make ourselves special and unique. And the truth is that God gave his son in the greatest act of love the world has ever known. And it had absolutely nothing to do with you or me. There was nothing and is nothing about me, Josh Vance, that makes me special or unique or deserving of one ounce of God's love much less his grace and mercy. I'm a sinner. On my own, I'm a weak and broken man. Yet God chose to demonstrate his love toward us, toward the world, not because of anything the world had done, but based on his own character. As John, the same John, writes in his letter of John, in 1 John 4.16, that God is love. The reason he did it is because he is love. His love for the world isn't based on anything in the world. It's based on his own character. His love for us is from the overflow of who he is. And the thing is that this is actually the greatest form of love that there is. Love that comes from choice and not from reciprocity. And we need to grasp why this love is so amazing. Because God chooses to love you means it's not based on what you do. And because it's not based on what you do, it means that there's nothing you can do that'll make him stop loving you. And that's really good news. It's not contractual. Most people, when thinking of the purest form of love in this world, we think of the relationship between a, a husband and a wife or between a parent and a child. And we speak of that love as, as hoping to be unconditional love. There's nothing my children, Annie, Owen, or Willow, could do that would make me disown them as my children. But at the same time, I can't love them perfectly, even though I would like to and I strive to. In my sinfulness, I love them best when they're behaving exactly like I want them to and when they're doing what I want them to. But when they're being disobedient or when I'm just tired and grumpy, I end up not loving them well, or, treating, or I treat them differently based on those 
fleeting things. I might lose my temper. Or I might talk to them in a way that was less than kind and gracious. We're all really good at loving people when they're doing exactly what we want them to do and treating us like we want them to treat us. But we're usually not so good at still loving them unconditionally when they're disappointing us or being difficult, even those we care the most about. So even the purest love that we can muster is still based on how people act or it's still based on conditions. We try to be unconditional, but we can't. Our love is imperfect, even in our closest and most intimate relationships. But God's love is perfect. And that should bring a flood of relief, knowing that God's love for us is not dependent on us. He isn't fickle like that. It's based on who he is, and God never changes. So no matter how bad you might mess up, no matter how unworthy you may feel, God's love for you is not affected by it because it was never dependent on you in the first place. God doesn't wake up grumpy some days and treats us differently. God does not take revenge on us if we mess up in sin. And that's a remarkable thing about God and his promises. That when God makes a covenant or a promise with a human, he knows in the beginning that we're not going to be able to hold it up perfectly. But he remains faithful anyway. And that should bring confidence in God. That should bring us hope and relief and security and peace. Because you can't do anything to lose the love of God because you didn't do anything to earn it in the first place. And the quality of God's love is perfection. That is what perfect love is. But another aspect of his love that we need to see is the depth of his love as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Do you see the depth and the extent of his love? This is the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. God sent his son Jesus into the world for one purpose, to die on the cross for our sin. We see that just in the first few chapters of John that Jesus' focus from the very beginning is on the cross. It was no accident. That was the mission. No one on the face of this earth has ever deserved a pardon or forgiveness for our sins against a holy God. God would be perfectly just and right to let every single person die in their sins and receive the just punishment. And if you really want to understand the grace and the mercy and the love of God, then you really have to understand the depth of our sin. A, a cheap view of sin will give you a cheap view of God's grace and love. Because when we sin, we're committing treason against God. We're committing cosmic treason against the God of the universe. And sin against God requires a different level of punishment. Even in our world, there's differing levels of consequences depending on who the offense is against. Imagine if one of our teenagers here, though they wouldn't do this, imagine if one of them punched their brother in the face. Um, there would be a consequence. You'd probably get grounded, maybe something else, um, but maybe not that big of a deal. But let's take it up a step. What if the offense was against the dad? What if the son punched the dad in the face? Then you're definitely getting grounded, and who knows what else may happen. We may never know. Um, but the offense is against a different person? Or what then if you punch a police officer in the face? You're going to end up in jail, most likely. But what then if you punch the president of the United States in the face? You're going to jail for a long, long time. The consequences, even though the action is the same, is much different based on who the offense is against. So then imagine if our offense is against God. 
Not our father, not an officer, not the president, but against the eternal God. The God who created everything with the word of his mouth and moment by moment grants us each breath that we breathe. And we have offended him. And sin against an infinite God deserves infinite punishment. So the state that we are in in our sin is one that we can't fix on our own. We can't dig ourselves out of that hole. And it was so deep and so pervasive that the only remedy for our situation, the only way to redeem us, was for God to send his best to die for us. So imagine for a moment, if you have a son or a daughter, going to them and saying, son, there's some really bad people out there, and they hate us, even though we've done them no wrong. These enemies of ours are in trouble, and I'm going to need you, son, to go die for them so that they can live. Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can you see the depth of God's love? While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, hating God, Christ died for us. God made the move and sent the most costly sacrifice possible. Our freedom was purchased by the priceless blood of Jesus. That's the depth of God's love. And because of that, whoever believes in him, Jesus, won't suffer eternal death, but instead will enter into eternal life. So we can truly tell any person we meet, no matter who they are, that God has shown them love. And the proof of that was in the sending of Jesus. But that truth has no effect. It has no impact unless someone believes. And picking back up there in verse 17, here's how John emphasizes this. In John 3, 17, he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Instead, he came to make a way for us to be forgiven and brought back to life. And the reason he didn't come to condemn the world is because he didn't have to. We were condemned already in our sin. It's a condemnation that's already pronounced and will be fully realized in the future judgment. And when it comes down to us, and when it comes down to it, it's really unbelief that ultimately separates us from God. The difference between life and death is believing in the name of the Son of God. That's why John wrote this book. He said that you would, that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you may have eternal life. This belief in Jesus is the only thing that can overcome our condemnation and change our present reality of death to our reality of eternal life. And though Jesus did not come to condemn, he still will one day return and judge. And here's how he finishes, beginning in verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John finishes by drawing a distinction between the light and the darkness. It's a theme we found introduced in the very few first verses of his book. 
And here John expounds on the difference between those who are in the light and those that are in darkness. There's a natural outworking and division between those who have stepped into the light and those who remain in darkness, condemned in their unbelief. And the truth of verse 19 is devastating. This is maybe the most tragic, uh, the tragic verse or thought in the Bible. The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness instead. Just as John said in chapter 1, that the true light came into the world, the world that he himself created, but they didn't receive him or even recognize him, even his own people. They loved the darkness because the light would expose their sin. They loved the darkness because what they did matched the darkness much better. They loved their sin more than they loved the only Son of God. That is the depth of our depravity and wickedness. And the worst part is that we love it. Why do we sin? Because we love it. If we didn't love it, we wouldn't do it. Romans 1 pairs perfectly with this. There the Apostle Paul several times uses the word exchange. He says mankind exchanged the glory of the immortal God for false dead idols. He says humanity exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And we worshiped created things rather than the creator. We are rebels by choice and we love our sin. If we didn't love it, we wouldn't do it. We love the satisfaction it brings when we tear somebody down with some well-constructed phrases. It feels good to gossip about that person we don't really care for. It feels good when we've made money and, and success our idol and then we actually achieve it. It feels good to flirt with that person who isn't your spouse. It's satisfying to think that you're better and holier than those people. It feels good to look at those pictures and videos that fill you with nothing but lust. It makes you feel better to drink to excess or keep taking those pills that you no longer need. Of course, all the promises of sin fall short in the end. The pleasure and satisfaction is momentary and fleeting. But it gets worse because then we try to hide it. It says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and keeps away from it because they don't want their evil to be exposed. So not only do we hate the light, but we run as far away as possible from it. And I'm afraid in our American Christianity that we've made it way too easy for people to remain in their darkness while still at the same time associating with people of the light. It's way too easy to show up here on Sunday morning, put on a mask, and build this facade that everything is okay, and go and play church, but on the inside we're more like the Pharisees who Jesus said they're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they look nice and clean, but on the inside, they're dead and rotting. And I have no doubt in a room of this size with around 100 people that there's probably people in here who have been members of a church for years and at the same time have a heart that is still bound and chained by sin. You're weighed down by the weight of your evil you've tried to keep in the darkness. And the call for you this morning is to step into the light where you can find forgiveness and freedom. And verse 21 says, whoever does what is true comes to the light. Our actions show where our heart lies. The one who does what is true and righteous and good proves that he has stepped into the light and embraced the true light, Jesus Christ. And he does it for everyone to see that his works have been carried out in God. And this isn't sinful pride either. This is a bold proclamation that your life is in the light and you can't help but obey the Father who has given everything to save you. And throughout John's gospel, he makes a clear distinction between those who follow God and those who follow the world. 
He makes a clear distinction between those who have received life and those who are dying and condemned. And the only difference between those people is what they did with Jesus. It's nothing else that they could do to earn it one way or the other. The only difference is what they did with Jesus. Those who have eternal life did nothing to achieve it or earn it. They could do nothing but look to the cross. Just as we saw last week um, when Jesus referenced the serpent in the wilderness, those who were bitten by the snake could do nothing to save themselves. All they could do was look to the bronze serpent and they would be saved. And in the same way, all we can do is look to the cross and there find salvation. We look to Christ crucified and resurrected for our salvation. And this morning, I know there's people in here whose eternity is at stake. You haven't placed your faith in Jesus. The Bible makes it clear that our sin will either be dealt with on the cross or in hell. Our sin will either be dealt with on the cross or in hell. Choose the cross. Look to the cross. If that's you, I call you to repent and believe this morning. I beg, I plead with you, turn to the cross where the love of God was displayed for all the universe to see and witness. It's our only hope in life and death. And we will focus even more on this in a moment when we observe communion. But look to the cross. But if that's you this morning and, and you're miserable, miserable right now in your heart, right now because you know that you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then I'd ask you to decide to do that this day. Knowing that the Bible promises that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So in just a moment, we'll sing one more song as we close, and, and I'll be down front, and I'd love to receive you and pray with you. And if you make that decision this morning, it's one that will last for all of eternity. Would you pray with me?